Welcome to You Can't Make This Up, a companion podcast for Netflix original documentaries. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, your host. Each episode, we take a close-up look at a Netflix original narrative, documentary, or docuseries, and I talk to the people who made them. We go deep behind the scenes for answers to questions raised by what we just watched. Today, we're talking about the documentary, Pray Away. I'm joined by the film's director, Christine Stalakis, and producer, Jess Devaney. A note to listeners, this episode contains spoilers, so make sure to watch all of Pray Away before listening on. In the 1970s, five men struggling with being gay in their evangelical church started a Bible study to help each other leave the, quote, homosexual lifestyle. They received tens of thousands of letters from people asking for help and became Exodus International, the largest and most controversial conversion therapy organization in the world. I was active in the gay community for 13 years. I was in it for six years, then struggled for five years before finding true freedom. It was 13 years for me. Four for me. We both walked away from it. I personally came out of the homosexual lifestyle. And we're just saying that if you want to change, there is a way to do it. I spent a lot of time thinking, how did I believe that? We were the leaders of the ex-gay movement. We believed that something must have happened to make you gay. Parents are learning about a program called Exodus, which claims to convert gays. We were promoting an idealized version of life. Gay people could be saved. I became a figurehead for this movement. My role was to get the message out. Homosexuality was changeable. I ached to be loved and to love a man. So, Christine, welcome to You Can't Make This Up. Thank you so much for having me. And Jess, welcome to you, too. Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here. So my question, I guess, for both of you, whoever wants to take it first, is why did you, in particular, make this story? Why was it important to you to make, and how did it come your way? Yeah, I can start. So I came to the story because of a personal experience. My uncle went through conversion therapy after he came out as trans as a child. And this was during an era where all therapists were conversion therapists. This is in the 60s and early 70s before being specifically gay was declassified as a mental disorder in psychiatric and psychological community. And what followed for him after that experience was a lifetime of really horrible mental health challenges. That includes depression, anxiety, addiction, suicidal ideations, obsessive compulsive disorder, a host of things. All things I have found are sadly really common for people that go through this. I knew him during a really, really special 10 years of sobriety and great mental health where he was my babysitter and one of my best friends. Um, And then his mental health declined again. And he actually passed away a few weeks before I went to film school. And I became very determined to make my first feature about the conversion therapy movement. And the thing that I found in the research that really struck me is that the vast majority of conversion therapy organizations are actually run by LGBTQ folks themselves who claim that they have changed from gay to straight or from trans to cis. And finding that was like a light bulb for me because I all of a sudden understood why my uncle believed that change was possible for his entire life. It was because of this hope. It's a false hope that leads people to dark places. So the film really became about trying to shine a light 
on how power works in this movement. This is a movement fueled by internalized oppression, by hurt people hurting other people. Um, that's why it continues into today, because it really is an entire belief system where an individual leader leaving won't stop it. Um, that became one of the central tenets of the film, um, exploring power. And then we uh, also weaved in the story of a survivor to really ground the film in something else we really want to communicate to the general public, which is that regardless of any of the complexities of this story, the conversion therapy movement or the ex-LGBTQ movement undeniably causes pain and trauma. So that's how I got to the project. Uh, and then I started as a, a team of one uh, in early days. And then eventually um, in the early days of development met Jess, my producing partner. So Jess, talk to me about your role in the documentary and, and why you were excited to be a part of the story. Sure, yeah. So um, one of our executive producers, Daniel Chelson, who I had worked with on a number of films prior to Pray Away, met with Christine in a kind of early advising session and knew that this film was going to be like right in my wheelhouse as a queer woman who grew up evangelical in Florida. And so he passed along her materials and was like, you have to take a look at this. And I was just really blown away both by the intimate access that she had to who I knew were kind of the superstars of the Christian Ren X LGBTQ movements that I had grown up reading their books or seeing their talks. They were household kind of names in my world. And then secondly, Christine's approach was not like the typical approach to the ex-gay movement, which often treats it in a very kind of cults like sensational approach and she had a really nuanced approach that that understood the ways that you know as she said this is really about homophobia internalized and then wielded outward you know one of the things that really struck me right from the start of your film was your inclusion of jeffrey mccall who claims to be ex-transgender and is now leading a mini movement like this himself. Can you talk to me about why it was important for you to include his story throughout the film, sort of juxtaposing it with, in particular, Julie Rogers' story? Most simply, a huge misconception that we are fighting in terms of the general public's understanding of this world is that this is a thing of the past. We have a real lack of national and international media that's covering this world. So even though films like Boy Erased and The Miseducation of Cameron Post that came out before ours are so important in terms of creating a dialogue about conversion therapy, these are both stories that happened in the past. So we wanted to make sure in this documentary, we really grounded it in the present, that this is a present tense issue, um, that this is happening today. And we also wanted to show the way in which gender identity has really risen to the top in this movement as a central focus of the bigger idea that's been consistent throughout the movement's history, that to be LGBTQ is a sickness and a sin. So that all manifests through the story of Jeffrey McCall, who you mentioned. And I just want to say also, for the record, I really appreciate Jeffrey participating, even though we disagree about the consequences of his actions. I know he believes he is doing the right thing. And that is a very common part of people's motivations for being a part of this world. And undeniably, those actions cause harm. Also, I mean, I don't want to obviously place my feelings inside of Jeffrey's head. But one of the things I found myself thinking about, and I'm curious, Jess, your take on this, 
Jeffrey says he's happier and free now. In fact, the branding of his outfit is freedom, you know, the freedom march. And I find it, it's, it's very, it's sad and it's also troubling, but mostly I just feel a lot of empathy. I think you treat him with a lot of dignity in the documentary, but do you think the freedom he's expressing is that now he's surrounded like back in a community again? Because it certainly seems like it would be difficult for me to imagine that it's because of the identity part that he feels that freedom. I really appreciate this question. And it it was critical for us to treat Jeffrey with dignity because he's a human being deserving of dignity, just like all of us. And we all want to be treated in that way as well. In terms of his experience of freedom, as you articulated it, I think we really need to take a step back and look at the ways that if we're living in a culture that is overwhelmingly homophobic and transphobic, the ability of us to thrive as queer or trans people in this society is just like we're up against all odds. And anyone who is queer or trans and living a healthy life in that way has had to do so much work and has had to have so much support to get there. And so I understand Jeffrey's experience of health and freedom through what he articulates as his relationship with Jesus and in this community that he has. Um, It's similar to when we hear Julie in the film talking about the acceptance that she felt in Exodus when it was the first time she could be honest about her queer identity in a faith community when queerness and faith are often put at odds. And so I think when we we look at folks who are expressing, experiencing freedom and ex-gay movements, the story starts a few steps before that, which is why they weren't experiencing freedom prior to those places. Yeah, that really struck me when Julie said that, when she said it was really the only time I got to hang out with other queer kids. And I found myself thinking, like, I wonder to the extent at which them being together and realizing that they weren't alone, because my sense is that a lot of these young people feel very alone uh, at home and in their like local churches, but then they go to this place and they realize they're not. And then later, when you see so many of them have changed their minds, I wonder how much that influenced it, because they did see that there were hundreds, thousands of people just like them in the world. What do you guys think? I actually think what you're picking up on is a reason people often commit and participate in these programs for a very long time because of those initial good feelings of belonging and acceptance. And I also think that from the experience of leaders, that's often a reason people think they're beginning to change. It's like that feeling of goodness and that sense of having purpose and place. It feels so good. And I think we can all relate to that as humans. And I think that that tingly, ineffable something, something that you feel when you feel like you found your place, people in this belief system sometimes go, oh, there it is. Change is coming. And uh, they sometimes stay for a really long time. And unfortunately, as time goes on, again, that belonging comes at a cost and then people start to really get hurt. One of the other observations that she made that resonated with me because I relate to it even just as a woman and certain experiences I've had in my life is that she found comfort because there was a reason. She was given a reason why she felt the way she felt. The reason wasn't this is who you are, of course. The reason is 
because at some point this thing must have happened to you that you maybe don't remember. And you get a little bit into the psychology of how those tactics are brought into the conversion therapy process. Uh, Jess, I'm wondering if you can talk about that a little bit, about this idea that the fact that there has to be a reason is the foundation of this entire thing. I mean, that is just a whole can of worms. Um, And I love this part of the conversation so much. And I think there are really big reasons strategically that the LGBTQ rights movement took a born this way approach to the struggle for dignity, rights and acceptance for queer people. And that strategy made a lot of gains and it also sacrificed something which that it doesn't matter how or why or any kind of causation, queer people are not just okay. The world is better with us in it. Our communities are better with us in it. We have something to offer. And it doesn't matter if you're like my ex-wife who knew she was queer from the time she was quite young, or if me came to understanding queer aspects of myself in my mid-20s for a variety of different reasons. We don't need to make a case for our right to be here. And conversely, we don't need to explain away people's queerness as a way of denying them their rights and acceptance. Hmm. You have access to so many leaders in this movement who, you know, they say it themselves, actively did a lot of damage in the world with the work they did. One of the people that fascinates me the most is Yvette Cantu Schneider. When she was Yvette Cantu, obviously, she was a spokesperson for a lot of anti-gay policy and Prop 8 and all of these anti-gay legislation. And she fed talking points really to everybody who wanted to have those talking points. And she says one thing in particular that, you know, it's like you always suspect it, but then to hear someone say it is really extraordinary, that part of that tactic was to name the scariest thing possible, right? And then that would be the thing people would glom onto. So, you know, if a man can marry another man, what's next? You know, a people marrying dogs? Like, I remember that being a talking point in the early 2000s. What was it like spending time with her and hearing her just articulate those very, very harmful really deeds that that she committed as part of her professional life. I mean, to take a step back, even not speaking specifically about a vet, I can say as someone who first witnessed this movement from the deep trauma of someone that I loved a lot, the entire experience of spending time with all the leaders in this film, present and past, it was a roller coaster. How could it not be a roller coaster? Um, Emotionally speaking, there were times when I was frustrated and angry or baffled or confused There were times when I did feel empathy or compassion, and I tried and we tried as a team to capture that roller coaster in the editing of the film. And something that was really important to me was to edit the film in a way where we gave space for people to feel what they're going to feel. And that can include anger and frustration. You know, we're not asking people to feel one way or another about former leaders because As a team, I know that we did not feel one way or the other always about former leaders. And as a team, you're sort of your film's first audience. So we did try to capture that. Specifically with Yvette, one thing I will share that really helped me understand, not excuse, but understand why she'd acted the way that she acted was that Yvette identifies as bisexual and genuinely did fall in love with her husband. And in the world she lived in, that was evidence that she had changed. And she lived in a larger world of homophobia and transphobia, where that like lit a match for her in terms of her entire worldview. 
combined with the fact that she entered the movement after experiencing trauma herself, the loss of many friends to AIDS. That is a very common combination in the movement, the sincere belief that you have changed in some way and some sort of traumatic event that kind of gets you into the movement where that feeling, again, of community and belonging, it's intoxicating. Hmm. So you have a lot of the original founders and leaders of Exodus in the film. And I wonder, did you get the sense, you know, looking at these interviews, thinking about them, Jess, that they have a lot of regret, obviously, over their participation in this movement. But I also wonder if they have regret over such a large portion of their lives not getting to be who they could have been that whole time. Did you see that at all? Because I felt like that was coming through a little bit for me. You know, I think that is such a good question. There's a real complexity when we're thinking about internalized homophobia wielded outward of the line of victim perpetrator. And we have perpetrators who are also victims of the same world that they're perpetrating in. And so regret and accountability is exceedingly more complex than in other situations. And I think Pray Away really invites the viewers into a process that we determine in community what accountability and justice looks like for former leaders in our midst. Hmm. John Pock is a very interesting character. You were talking a little bit about power before, Christine. He really gained a lot of personal and political power through being a very outspoken person who says he was formerly gay. How much do you think that power influenced him in terms of really trying to keep the mask on? Because even when he was, you know, it seems like even when he was in a position where he was caught again and again by his wife being who he was, uh, he says having the feelings that he had, it seems like the lure of being able to be out there in the world was really meaningful to him. You could make an entire film about the complexities of people being in what this world are called mixed orientation marriages and having families and the impact that has on people's families. In terms of the lure of power and maybe visibility is another word I would use. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I understand your question. And I think undeniably, if you live in a world in which you are told that a part of you is not only worthless, but again, is sick and sinful, of course, there is going to be a lure of the feeling of acceptance that comes from getting on a stage and a lot of people applauding at you and going, thank you, thank you for what you're doing. And I actually think that is a big reason that people go into denial, which John talks about in the film. And I will also say in this world, people spend decades being essentially professionally ex-gay or ex-LGBTQ and often don't have another way to have a job. I mean, if you start this when you're 16, maybe you've never gone to college, doesn't have to be college, you've never had another professional experience. There's sometimes a narrative you hear that people are doing this for the money, quote unquote, which I think is a little bit of a misdirect. Like people aren't getting rich off this world overall. We can talk about the bigger political right organizations that use these stories as like modes for fundraising and stuff to support their own political stuff. But in terms of ex-gay and ex-LGBTQ leadership, the vast majority of people are making reasonable salaries. But it is true If even that, a lot of people are donating their time, but it is true that a lot of them don't know how to have another job, professionally speaking, and that's part of the stuckness that you see. I really hope that encourages other people in this world who might see Pray Away to get out early, 
to get out really early. Because I do think the longer people stay in the world, the harder it is to leave, the harder the denial cements, and the harder it is to find a way in which to continue your life outside this world when professionally you might not know where to go. That's being said, there are options. John is emblematic of that. You know, he eventually went to culinary school and is doing something very different now. Um, but yeah, there's a lot wrapped up in your question. So my answer had a lot wrapped up in it too, but it's a good one. Yeah, no, I just keep thinking about him talking about his, you know, wife, Anne, wearing like the pretty Talbot suits. And, you know, the visibility is a better way to phrase it because it seems like he had found a way to be in the world. Uh, Talk about something that was very close to him, but obviously through the shell of this, you know, hurtful deception. I, I don't, I have a lot of empathy for him too. Like I, in in some ways kind of get it. What about you, Jess? I just, I would love to add that like, culturally we do not give a lot of room and we don't value people in the public eye changing their minds like american culture particularly views changing your mind as a weakness and a flaw and no matter where you're at no matter what the topic changing your mind is not a positive thing and so i think lifting up models of what it looks like to change your mind what it looks like to express regret and go on your own journey toward accountability and living within this new perspective those are really valuable because we don't have a lot of those i mean it's really stunning to me that the exodus folks had that meeting on film which by the way i want to ask you a little bit more about the context of that and dissolved their organization and it spoke a lot to me about the difference between the political landscape then and the political landscape now that there was a willingness to not be entrenched when faced directly with pain. That was very surprising to me. It shouldn't have been, but it was very surprising to me. What about you? I could talk a lot about that scene. It's probably my favorite in the film. And I think it is because it builds off what Jess is saying. It's a model of what the beginning of an accountability process or maybe a restorative justice process might look like, which is deep listening, which is taking seriously the fact that you've been in denial and trying to rip that denial off and really listen to people. I think that's the beginning, not the end, but the beginning. Um, And we tried in the film to lift up the fact that it really was the courage, the vulnerability, the understandable frustration, the hurt of survivors sharing their stories and being willing to share their stories directly with the people who had harmed them. That was really the thing that closed Exodus. And I think that scene's one of the most emotional scenes in the film because you can feel the power of that pain being faced in that power is that it closed the largest conversion therapy organization that's existed in the world. Unfortunately, the movement continues today. You know, the movement didn't end with Exodus, which we also show. And I think it is because of this larger conversation we're talking about of power, internalized oppression, our larger culture of homophobia and transphobia. But yes, that scene, you know, which isn't a scene, it's something that happened in real life that got filmed, is incredibly powerful for all the reasons that we are talking about. Each of the survivors here comes from a different level. Some of them are fresh out. Some of us have been surviving for 12 years, waiting for a moment to look at you and say, you are responsible because you've had opportunities to see our wounds before and you've not done anything about it. The irony of it is, I feel I lost my soul from trying to do the right thing all the time. Not from doing the wrong thing, not for giving in. I lost my soul because I did the right thing. And these kids, they're killing themselves because of things that continue to be said to them that they're not good enough 
and that they're not beautiful as they are, and I am not okay with that, and I can be silent no longer. It also sort of points out the fact that it's kind of always been this way, unfortunately. And, I, you know, in journalism, the conversation is sort of internal in newsrooms about how to cover things, how to handle things. Hmm. That at some point, this human rights issue completely became a political issue and the human rights part of it just was not part of the conversation for so long. And that scene points out to me the impact of seeing the human rights conversation almost like for the first time, it seems. I mean, especially for someone like Julie, who was like she was in it since she was a kid. And it was looking at her face during that scene. It's like she had never heard it this way before. There's something really powerful in the way that human stories can counter cognitive dissonance. And cognitive dissonance is self-perpetuating facts, you know, figures and data. These things don't penetrate cognitive dissonance. But if you open yourself up even a little bit to the humanity of someone across from you, there's a real opportunity there. And I think we see that on screen. And and I think that speaks to the like human rights and dignity component coming into the systemic oppression of the X game movement. I was watching the film, Christine, and I texted the producer of this podcast, Shana, and told her, this is really disturbing, but in the right way. And the scene where I texted that to her was the scene in which we see Jeffrey fielding a call from a mother... Hello? Oh, hi, Jeffrey. I stumbled across your Facebook. I started following your pages because it was just so hopeful to me to hear about your story and what happened to you and what I hope happens to my son, you know? Want to go ahead and tell me a little bit of what's been going on? So we have a 20-year-old son. He said, I'm a transgender girl. And I looked at him and I said, you're a boy. And he's been gone for about six months now. And it's been really hard. I miss him so much. But he thinks that I'm rejecting him because I won't call him my daughter. How can I agree with that when, in my conscience, I believe that's a lie? Well, I think he knows you love him. He just wants you... He wants you to do it the way he wants you to do it. Exactly. And and exactly. sometimes if someone is, if a child is going out in the road, a parent's not going to let a semi-truck come and hit them. If they have to yank them up, if they have to go grab them, they're going to get them out of the road. And that's how, what you're trying to do. That's right. And that's confirmation to me. Appreciate that. It's a strong spirit that wants to force you to call him a woman and he's not that wants you to bow down and you're going to say yes and you have to agree with what it says. Right, what Don't it, do that. Like. Yeah, exactly. I do believe um, that you have to stand in faith with this. Okay. That scene was at the same time devastating, um, disturbing, but also really underlined the... Like the need that people have who don't understand to just find someone to talk to and that Jeffrey is and and people like him are just really filling that like they're their own, you know, they're sort of underlining these issues and also perpetuating the cycle. And I, I mean, were you disturbed to, to see that? <laughs> I, were you there in person and you saw it or disturbed to see it on film later? I'm, I'm just curious about your feelings about that. I was there. I recorded most of the sound for our film. So I was there for most of the filming of everything you see. Mm. Um, and yes, 
it was disturbing. And yes, all the things that you say are thoughts that I had. Um, and the thing I kept thinking when I was there was this is where it starts. You know, I got into this because of my own family processing um, how to support, this is in the 60s, but how to support my trans uncle. So to see decades later, a family struggling to figure out how to support their trans kid, find Jeffrey and have that message get communicated in when we filmed was 2018, 2019, was very disturbing. Absolutely, very disturbing. Um, you know, in my own family, my grandparents eventually became affirming, 100% affirming, but my uncle was too far into the belief system that he was sick and that he was sinful to be able to affirm and love himself. Um, so yes, you know, I have, don't have much more to add except to say that I'm glad that we captured it on film because this for so many families is where it starts. Hmm. Jess, what do you make of the media coverage at the time? Because I saw the footage from 60 Minutes, for instance, and I found myself wondering, is this a straight story? Are they showing this in a way that makes some viewers believe, you know, this could be a solution for my family's, quote, crisis? Um, or were they being critical of it at the time? It was a little hard to tell. And, you know, that was also disturbing in its own way that this got so much air without it being approached from more a more critical place. I think that speaks to where our culture and media was at the moment. There was a lot of coverage that sensationalized it and put it in the daytime talk shows, propping it up as sort of like a joke because being queer was a joke and being ex-queer was like even more of a joke or even more sensational. So it, it gave the opportunity for some of these like daytime type talk shows to, to prop people up. And then there's the more like quote serious media that that is still operating in a context that is largely not affirming of queer folks. We're living in a place where we did not have equal rights in that time. So it's not surprising to see that the mainstream media wasn't bringing this kind of critique. And that's the opportunity that we get to do in the film. We're, we're also able to comment on past media coverage of this topic and movement. So you talked a few times about the fact that conversion therapy is very much alive and is a movement still today. Can you tell me a little bit about the state of that movement today? What are we really confronting right now? So first of all, the most basic fact to know is the conversion therapy movement does continue today, period. Uh, one thing uh, is to know is that Exodus International, which we profile in our film, um, did close about 10 years ago. But it was always an umbrella organization, meaning it was a referral organization. It consolidated resources and information of conversion therapists and ex-LGBTQ programs that existed around our country and around our world. So when Exodus closed, the majority of those organizations that they used to refer people to continued. So that's just one thing to understand. Um, the second thing I will say, which is something that we capture in the film, is that the new or the continuation of the ex-LGBTQ movement looks a little different today than it did um, in the past. It's more racially and ethnically diverse. It weaves in language of love and acceptance. It might even sound like language you would expect to see in an LGBTQ rights group. Um, but if you poke at what they are doing and the message that they are sending a little bit, the same practices and the same belief system underlie 
their actions. It's a rebrand. This message remains to be LGBTQ is a sickness and a sin. And within that world remains licensed therapists that will practice conversion therapy, pastoral leaders that will not think of themselves as conversion therapists. You know, it's all the same stuff, basically, is what I'm trying to get at. Um, it just is continuing with a rebrand and a really powerful rebrand that's reaching a lot more people um, in some ways, especially online. There is like a real presence of this world now that is millennial driven, that has its Instagram hashtags, that has all the, you know, TikTok accounts that unfortunately young people who are looking for answers and looking for hope might tap into. Uh, and we also tried to capture that as well. And I would add to that, like language around things like spiritual healing from sexual sin or sexual struggles, even more broadly, like what what person hasn't at some point experienced some kind of sexual struggles or has been in search of spiritual healing and so it brings people in under like false premises or like kind of euphemistic premises um that then lands them in a place where they're actually experiencing conversion therapy under the name of so-called spiritual healing so there is some political momentum around bans on conversion therapy in different parts of the country. Can you just talk about whether or not you think those will be effective? So the the conversion therapy bans are really important and, and can stop conversion therapy in the context of licensed practitioners. They also help create a public conversation around the reality and existence of conversion therapy, which is deeply important. At the same time, those bans are limited because of religious freedom laws, they don't extend into the places where conversion therapy is most pervasive. So the majority of people experiencing conversion therapy experience this in religious communities, uh, ministries, and, and from non-licensed um, practitioners. The bans don't touch those. And so where our film complements the legal strategy of our partner organizations who are leading on these bans um, is bringing a real culture change orientation to, to shift the conversation in a popular level that conversion therapy causes harm and trauma. Well, Christine, your film is now on Netflix. It's getting a big audience. Millions of people are going to see it. What are you hoping that people who maybe don't know a lot about this take away after watching your film? I have a lot of hopes and I am ultimately a hopeful person myself, but most importantly, I hope that we have created a shared piece of culture, a shared document that we can all get on the same page about in terms of sharing and knowing that the conversion therapy movement causes harm and trauma. Doesn't matter where you land politically, doesn't matter where you live globally, I want that to just become a fact, a fact that we all share. I think that too often this movement and this conversation gets lost in politics. This is a human problem about abuse. And that's my greatest hope. And then what comes from that is going to look like a lot of different things that we could talk about over another hour and a half podcast. Um, but if people are looking also for tangible things to do after watching this film, I really encourage people to visit our website, www.prayawayfilm.com, just to have a central place to see all the ways in which local bands are getting passed, 
Um, there are mental health resources for survivors. There are legal resources for survivors. There's ways in which you can have dialogues in your own churches, homes, communities, families. Um, we have a lot of kind of support materials that can help you have really rich dialogue. All that stuff's important, but for me, most importantly, is that we just all share a sense that this is officially painful and traumatic. Well, the film is Pray Away. It's now on Netflix. It is disturbing. It is edifying. It's riveting. And I think it's really important. Christine, thanks so much for talking to me about it. Thank you for having me. And Jess, thanks to you, too. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks. That's it for this week's episode. Thanks again to director Christine Stalakis and producer Jess Devaney. For more of my takes on true crime, check out my other podcast, Crime Writers On. Each week on that show, we break down the latest in true crime documentaries, podcasts, and pop culture. If you like You Can't Make This Up, please rate and review this show and share it with your friends. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and wherever else you get your audio. And make sure to subscribe to the show or stay tuned for new episodes. You Can't Make This Up is a production of Netflix. Our music is by Hansdale Sue, and our producer is Shayna Deloria. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. Thanks so much for listening.